Wow. Are you ready this morning? Yes. Anybody have a headache? Well, you're about to get one. So uh, I told first service there's Tylenol at the door if you're uh, in need of it. Now, before we begin our journey through Colossians, I know I've been announcing first and second Thessalonians, but that's because I wanted to get to the prophecies. Uh, but we're not going to skip Colossians. We mentioned that there's a lot of uh, duplicate information with the book of Galatians, which we just covered not too long ago, but there's some dandies in there we don't want to miss. So uh, we are going to start next a uh, study through the book of Colossians. Uh, but today you can see what our theme and title is for the day. And in part, uh, it's because doing so many things online, there are just questions that come up over and over and over. And some of them seem to get bypassed and never asked on the uh, the panel, whether it's a round table with Jan and Amir and Mike, or just a Q&A with Amir and I. So I want to address some of those things, and mainly because I met somebody after second service last week, and at the end of the service, I talked about what's happening in Ukraine and how that has prophetic implications and all of that. And, um, you know, the, the lady said to me, you know, you need to talk more about this here. And I said, I talk about it every week online. And uh, she said, well, I don't have a computer. Well, there's other people that don't have computers, too. And there's other people that don't watch YouTube and all that. So we're going to do what she asked this morning and talk about this stuff. You know why we're going to talk about it? Because it's awesome. <laughs> and Jesus is coming soon. Amen. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at topics of our day that relate to Bible prophecy, that there's different interpretations on them and hopefully find some clarity. Now, where we need to start is in the book of Daniel. And we'll look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, where we are told, but you, Daniel, or Daniel is told, shut up the words and seal the book until when? Till the time of the end. And that's important. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And we talk about the information age, the age of technology, how knowledge has increased. Seems though the context is specific to what Daniel was told to seal, to shut up and seal, and that is knowledge concerning the visions that God had given him will increase in the last days. Now, there are certain aspects of prophecy that are only going to become clear to the people who are living near their fulfillment or in the last days. And this is what Daniel was told. And what he was told about is a day which I believe we now live. We live in the latter days, the last of the last days. And there are reasons that we'll look at this morning to support that. Now, one other thing we need to recognize is that this sets a precedent for groups of prophecies being fulfilled in a compact period of time. Now, think about all the prophecies that were fulfilled when Jesus first came. Isaiah 7.14 was fulfilled. Jesus was born of a virgin. Micah 5.2 was fulfilled. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Hosea or Isaiah 11.1 was fulfilled. He is called the branch, the uh, Hebrew term there, Nazar, which where we get, he will be called a Nazarene. Hosea 11.1 1 was fulfilled. He was called out of Egypt. Zechariah 9.9 was fulfilled. He came to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Psalm 34.20 was fulfilled. None of his bones were broken. Isaiah 53 was fulfilled. And the multitude of things that are compacted into that forbidden chapter were fulfilled all in a compact period of time, just to name a few. Now we're told in Matthew 24, 32 to 35, Jesus said this to the four inquiring disciples. We'll talk more about this as we go. Now learn this parable from what? The fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this what? Generation, Generation will not pass, will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, we're going to talk a lot about the Olivet Discourse and the content of it here in a few moments. But here Jesus said there's going to be a compact period of time, a single generation, when everything he talked about in the Olivet Discourse is going to come to pass. And also, I think we need to understand that this single generation is not uh, a time period that we know definitively. Uh, in between services, somebody emailed me and said, how long is a generation? I knew you were going to ask that. And I can tell you without question or hesitation, I don't know. I don't know how long a generation is. It could mean that no one who was born on May 14, 1948, or saw the rebirth of the nation of Israel, who were alive at that time, will die before all things are fulfilled. Uh, you know, Psalm 91, 70 years a man is determined, reason of strength, 80 years. I don't know how long uh, a generation is, but what I do know is that Israel is getting older. And Jesus is coming soon. Amen? Now, one other thing we need to mention, and then we'll dig into our time and topic. In Revelation chapter 19, 6 through 10, John said, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Listen to John's response. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, scholars debate as to who this being is, if it's a glorified human being or an angelic being. And, um, you know, there's good uh, debate material on either side. But the thing we need to point out is that John, in response to this absolutely sensational and fascinating thing that he heard, fell at the feet of the messenger. And the messenger immediately corrected him with the wisest counsel we could ever receive in regards to what happens in this scene, and that is worship God. Now, our directions and revelations come from God, not the interpretations of man. And that means we should not be following prophecy teachings or teachers because they teach what we like to hear. Or they teach things that are sensational. Or they teach what we ourselves believe. John heard something that caused him to bow before someone who was unworthy of worship, and he was immediately corrected. And along with that, we need to be equally careful of calling people heretics or claiming they are unsaved because their interpretation of certain prophetic events differs from ours. Listen, you are not saved by your eschatological position. You are saved by the blood of Jesus. And that's the end of that story. Amen? Now, the second thing to note from Revelation 19 is that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit, the pneuma, the life breath of prophecy. And listen, prophecy is why the Bible can make the claim to be living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
it's not just dead history. It's not just warm poetry. It is not unsubstantiated claims about the future. It is an act, an, an exact detailed account of what God has already foreseen and thus foretold that is happening right before our eyes today. Prophecy distinguishes the Bible from every other religious writing. Somebody say, now, our topic entitled today, as you can see on the front of the podium, is prophecy perplexities. Now, the word perplexities or perplex means something complicated. It can also mean something confusing. And Bible prophecy can be complicated, but God is not the author of confusion. So if there's confusion about prophecy, it's on the part of the messenger, not the message. And so hopefully we can unravel some confusion today and understand the prophetic complexities or perplexities by looking to God's word. Now in Luke chapter 21, 25 to 28, we're told in Luke's record of the Olivet Discourse, there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, the stress of nations with what? Perplexity, confusion. And the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things, what? Begin to happen or at the commencement of them, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Now, the things that are happening in our world today are creating confusion in the minds of people. And confusion in the minds and hearts of people often leads to fear. And during the tribulation, that fear will be so great, people will die from fear. They'll be scared literally to death. Now, I'll remind you, we have no part to play in the tribulation scenario. And that's good news this morning. Now, we mentioned the fig tree in Matthew 24. So let's start there and gain some clarity as to what and to whom the Olivet Discourse is in regards to. Pray with me, please. Father, again, we seek clarity from your word this morning. And Lord, I pray most of all that we would have the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and that we would be a people who, by our love one for another, would be showing to others that we are your disciples. So Lord, help us to move through this uh, by the aid of your Spirit and your touch on the ears of the hearer and the lips and voice of the speaker. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to move through a lot of things, and we're going to talk about them quickly uh, and not give anything it's just due. But we've got a lot of things that I hope to at least unravel a little bit for us and clear up any confusion. Now, as I said, we're going to start with the Olivet Discourse. Now, there are some who say that the fig tree in the Olivet Discourse represents Israel becoming a nation again in the last days. And there are those who say, no, it doesn't. Now, the Noah doesn't position is based on Luke's record of uh, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus said this, Luke 21, 29 to 31. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. That tells us that things are going to be visible. They're going to be understandable, as uh, Daniel was told, in chapter 12, verse 4, there are things reserved exclusively for the understanding of the people living in or near them. Now, the argument against the fig tree relationship uh, with Israel is the inclusion of all the trees 
in Luke's record. And thus the fig tree budding, being representative of Israel, is disqualified. And this is the gist of their argument. Now, I think most of you probably know, I believe that the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. And I will not uh, stand up here and give you my opinion. But what I will do is give you a scriptural foundation for why I believe that. That's where you say, Joel 1.7. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my what? Fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. And this is talking about the diaspora and, and uh, all the, the abandonment of the land of the nation of Israel. Hosea 9.10 says this, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the what? Fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved or their idolatry. And then in Luke 13, 6 to 9, Jesus spoke this parable. A certain man had a what? Fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for how long? Three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, uh, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. Now, two Old Testament passages, Joel 1, 7, Hosea 9, 10, establish Israel being represented by a fig tree. So there's an Old Testament precedent for an idiom of the fig tree being used for Israel now, or idiom of Israel being used uh, by a fig tree. Now, how long was Jesus' earthly ministry? Three years. How long did the landowner come and visit the fig tree? Three years. Now, so Luke's parable talks about the three-year ministry of Jesus to Israel, and Israel is presented as an un fruitful fig tree, right? Is Luke in the New Testament or the Old? So we have Old Testament precedent. We have New Testament confirmation that the fig tree is an idiom for the nation of Israel. Now, for those who make the argument strictly based on the other trees comment from Luke chapter 21, they would do well to have a look at Mark's record of the Passion Week. In Mark 11, 12, and 13, Mark writes this. Now the next day, when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry, he being Jesus. And seeing from afar a what? Fig tree having leaves. He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Was he rejected by his own when he came the first time? So he was rejected by the fig tree when he came the first time, right? Why? Because it wasn't their time. Their time is at the end of the tribulation. Now, in Mark chapter 11, we're told in the morning or the morning of the next day, as they passed by the previous day, Jesus cursed the fig tree. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. This is speaking of the scattering of the nation of Israel. Now in Mark 13, 28 to 31, consistent with Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Mark's record records this from the Olivet Discourse. Now learn this parable from what? The fig tree, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away 
till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means what? Pass away. Mark eleven twelve opens with the phrase, the next day. If you back up in Mark chapter 11, you'll see the previous day was the day of the triumphal entry. So on Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, accepting worship for the very first time publicly, the group acknowledging, blessed is he, Baruch HaRashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The next day, which was Monday, he came and encountered the fruitless fig tree and he cursed it. Now in the morning of the next day, which would be Tuesday, he encountered the fruit tree once again. The, the fig tree dried up from the roots once again. Now on Monday, the fruitless fig tree was symbolic of unbelieving Israel. On Tuesday, the figless uh, fruit tree was symbolic of the unbelieving nation of Israel. So on Wednesday, when he said, learn this parable from the fig tree, what's he talking about? He's talking about fruitless Israel, right? I mean, if it meant that on Monday, and it meant that on Tuesday, and it's the same teacher teaching the same group, he's not going to depart from what they just encountered on the third day when he teaches them the parable. Learn this parable from the fig tree. Now, we've established the fig tree as an idiom for Israel in both Testaments, and the fruitless fig tree is representative of unbelieving Israel. They encounter the fig tree twice in two days, and then either later in the second day or on the morning of the third day, Jesus says, learn the lesson from the fig tree. He says, when you see the fig tree budding again, speaking of Israel, budding again, you know the end is near. And the generation that sees the rebirth of the nation of Israel will not pass away before all these things take place. In other words, Jesus is saying, just like at my first coming, there's going to be a compact period of time where a massive number of Bible prophecies concerning me are going to be fulfilled. How long is the generation? I don't know. So, listen, one thing to highlight is that using this generation is a rather unusual way to represent a seven-year period. As a matter of fact, it would break with biblical precedent. When God is talking about seven years, he's talking about seven years. He doesn't use hyperbole. He doesn't extend it beyond the time period and leave it up to one's imagination, especially with the fact that there's one seven-year period left in the Daniel uh, passages that we'll talk about in a moment that is yet to be fulfilled. And when God is talking about a generation, he's talking about an indeterminate time period. And listen, there is no grammatical or textual reason not to interpret a generation as a generation. So I would not agree with those who say that the word generation means seven years or the tribulation. If it meant seven years, God would say seven years. Is anybody still here at all this morning? Okay, just checking. Now, so what about the all the trees thing in Luke? Well, does the fig tree represent unbelieving Israel? So is only Israel going through the tribulation? So if the fig tree represents unbelieving Israel, what would all the trees represent? Other nations, the rest of the world. The whole world is going to go through the tribulation, right? So I do not believe that that is a viable argument against uh, what we just mentioned. The generation means a generation. I believe, in case you're wondering, the budding fig tree represents the rebirth of the uh, nation of Israel in the Olivet Discourse, and we'll just leave it at that. If you need my email, you know what it is, D. Landis. <laughs> now, the next subject often debated about the Olivet Discourse is, does it have anything to do with the church age? 
or is it strictly related to the 70th week of Daniel for uh, the tribulation, the great tribulation? Now, a couple of things we need to establish as far as biblical practices. And that is we don't need to look any further than Genesis to see that the Bible does not hold a strict chronology every time it's talking about future events or things that have happened in the past. The narrative is not always being advanced as we read, and you find that to be true in the book of Revelation. Specifics are given, and details follow related to the specific events that were given. And this is practiced right in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1.27, where we're told God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and from them, 178 different genders. No, it doesn't say that, it doesn't. What's the gender list? Male and female. That's according to the manufacturer. So I'm going to stick with him. Amen? Now, Genesis 2.18 then says, the next chapter, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, he already told us he created the male and female in Genesis 1.27, but he goes back in chapter 2 and gives us specifics about the need for and the uh, reason for the creation of woman, to make uh, a comparable helper to man. Genesis 1.27 makes a historical statement. Genesis 2.18 gives specific details about the historical statement. Now, one other thing we need to recognize before we move forward and increase your headache this morning is that the Bible moves forward and backwards in time without announcing it's doing so many times. I think the prime example is Daniel chapter 9. Two verses covering thousands of years. In Daniel 9, 26 and 27, we're told, after the 62 weeks, so the, remember the word weeks is sevens, seven-year uh, periods, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. We don't need to explain that, so we'll just move on. <laughs> now, actually what Daniel does here is he moves, or he mentions the death of the Messiah. The Messiah will be cut off. Remember, that's a Hebrewism for killed. Did Jesus die for his own sins? No, he was cut off, but not for himself. He died for the sins of others. Daniel moves from the death of the Messiah in 32 AD, April 6th is the believed date, and then he moves forward to the destruction of the temple by the prince of the people and by the people who are to come, from whom the prince will come, speaking of the Antichrist, and then he jumps ahead to 70 AD. Now, the death of the Messiah was outside the church age. 70 AD and the destruction of the temple was inside the church age. And then he jumps again to the Antichrist some 2,000 years later after the church age, and he doesn't announce or give notice of any of this. So it's not unusual for the Bible to move through huge portions of time without giving it a mention. Now the point is this, though it's rare, the Bible does address things that pertain both to the church and to Israel simultaneously as it relates to Bible prophecy. Now we also need to note that the audience for the Olivet Discourse were four Jews. Luke tells us they were uh, Peter, Andrew, James and John, the two pairs of fishermen brothers amongst the twelve, three of them who were in the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Now, these were four Jews who were also founding members of the church. 
So there was something unique about them. The argument that the Olivet Discourse is based on the speaker, audience, and location of the teaching proves it's only pertaining to Israel could also be argued from the other side through the lens of this was the king of the Jews, who is the head of the church, talking to four Jews who had found the church about the signs of his coming that involve Israel and the church. And in Matthew 24, 36 to 44, did you catch all that? <laughs> Matthew 24, actually what's happening here this morning is I'm doing a four-hour sermon in 50 minutes, so uh, just hang on for the ride. Now, in Matthew 24, 36 to 44, we're told, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But nobody knows the day or the hour. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days when, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, or at the time of his coming, two men will be in the field, one taking the other left, two women grinding at the mill, one will be taking the other left, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. That's an illustration. Therefore, you also be what? Ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Now, the content previous to what we just read is clearly 70th week of Daniel's stuff for things related strictly to the tribulation period. But again... Does the Bible always hold to a strict chronology? Is it always advancing the narrative? No. Sometimes it goes back and goes back and revisits detail. We already established that. Amen. So could this passage be related to a time period outside of the tribulation? Absolutely. Now, several things quickly. The phrase days before the flood tells us that the days that were as they were in Noah's day were the days before God's global wrath. The days before the flood were before God's global wrath. Now that's important to hang on to because Jesus says before the days of God's global wrath, before the flood, there was a business as usual attitude he describes as buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage until the day which they did not know that Noah entered the ark. Now, the proponents of the Olivet Discourse relating only to Israel say these are the signs that Jesus is giving that indicate his second coming is at hand. Now, the problems with this are many. And first of all, we know that from the abomination of desolation that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation, that there are 42 months or 1260 days left before the second coming. The Bible tells us this. In Daniel 9.27, it says the beast will break the covenant with Israel at the midpoint of the 70th week. And Revelation 11.2, say the Antichrist rule is going to last for 42 months. And that leaves 42 months or 1260 days before the second coming. So in that sense, the date of the second coming can be known or calculated by those who are alive during the tribulation. Did I mention we won't be here? Amen. If we're born again, that is. Now, listen, let me also say this, and this is what I think is, is most important for understanding and interpretive value. Listen, before the second coming, there will not be a business as usual attitude on the earth. 
There will not be buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage as though nothing is going to happen. That's not what it's going to be like before the second coming. Before the second coming, people are going to be scared to death and literally, literally die from fear during that time. Now, Revelation 18, 9 through 11 says, The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously, this is speaking of idolatry, fornication in this case, with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, speaking of Babylon, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour, in a short span of time, your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her for what reason? Nobody buys her stuff anymore. They're going to be buying and selling right before the second coming? No, nobody's going to buy their stuff. Now get this, Revelation 18, 23. The light of the lamp shall not shine in you anymore, Babylon, speaking of the global world system. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery, your pharmacy, all the nations were deceived. There will be no buying and selling. There will be no marrying and giving in marriage right before the second coming. Therefore, this has to be speaking about right before the rapture. People will have an indifference to the clear signs that judgment is coming. Now, you have to remember, Jesus said it's going to be like the days of Noah, and then he gave those descriptive phrases. If you look back in Genesis, we know that the earth was filled with violence. Is it right now? And the thoughts and intents of man's heart was only evil continually. Is that true right now? But you know what we also have to remember is that Peter said in 2 Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And Genesis also tells us that up to the point of the flood, it had not rained on the earth. So Noah and his family are building a boat on dry ground on a planet where it had never rained for 120 years, preaching righteousness. And how many got on the boat? Eight. Eight. Jesus said, that's how it's going to be. People are going to go about their business, buying, selling, marrying, giving marriage. Who cares that the church is saying that Judgment Day is coming? The Olivet Discourse is not limited to the 70th week of Daniel, but to the end of the church age and the time that immediately follows it. Now, let me insert something real quickly before we move on. We have so many things to talk about today. Let's just go ahead and have you meet third service when they come in. We'll just keep it. Now, listen. Genesis 12.3, get this question all the time, came in yesterday. Uh, I will bless those who bless you, speaking, God speaking to Abram. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, obviously, this is speaking of the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, or in a word, the Jews. Now, is it today important for nations and peoples to be a blessing to Israel? Can it be a curse to those who are not? Well, the interesting thing is, if you read this from the Hebrew, the word curse and curses are two completely different Hebrew words. Now, the first word, the word curse, uh, means to execrate, and that means to denounce or condemn. So the first thing God says is those who denounce or condemn Israel. He says that he will curse them. The word curses in the plural means to make or think little of or to despise. So what God says is those who denounce the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, I will think little of them and even despise them. So is this intact today? Well, what was the last half of the statement? And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a messianic prophecy. 
through Abraham would come Isaac and Jacob, and through Jacob would come Judah, and through Judah would come David, and through David would come Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. And in Abraham, through Jacob and the Judah and the Jesus progression we just mentioned, all the families of the earth are blessed. Are all families of the earth blessed by the Messiah today? Are people still coming to Jesus today? So is the fruit of Abraham's loins, rather, Abraham didn't have a womb. Loins. <laughs> I'm trying not to get kicked off of YouTube here, so, you know. Abraham's descendant is still blessing the world today. So if the last half of the promise is true, isn't the first half? So we need to be a blessing to the nation of Israel. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now, we're going to double dip on our next question, and that is, when is the rapture? And I don't mean what's the date. I mean, is it before the tribulation? Is it during the tribulation? Is it after the tribulation? And some say, and I hear this every time Amir and I do something uh, regarding Bible prophecy, doesn't it have to be at the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation? Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 52, now this I say, brethren, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, these bodies are not fit for eternal existence. And then he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep in any for death, but we shall all be changed. How fast? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when? At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be what? Changed into immortal incorruptible beings. Now, some argue that that last trumpet is the last of the seven in Revelation eleven fifteen. Now, the problems with that are many, not the least of which is at this point in time, God has been pouring out his wrath on the earth to the degree that over four billion people have been killed at this point in time. There's a quarter killed under the uh, riders of the, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and then under the trumpet judgments, there's another third of the inhabitants of the earth uh, that are killed. The other problem with this is that there's been no mention of the church since chapter three. John is told in chapter four, verse one, come up here. And then after that, there's a heavenly scene recorded for two chapters and then six to 19, it's all about Israel. All the idioms are related to Israel. And there's nothing about the church. Now, one other thing we need to remember is that the second coming fulfills the Feast of Trumpets, not the rapture. And every time Rosh Hashanah comes around, there's lots of talk about the rapture. Is the rapture on Rosh Hashanah. Let me give you the short answer. It's two letters. The first one is in, and the other one is no. No, the rapture is not on Rosh Hashanah. The second coming fulfills Rosh Hashanah. And according to Leviticus 23-24, the Feast of Trumpets is uh, what... Rosh Hashanah is all about, or when it happens, I should say. Leviticus 23, 24 says that this, the Feast of Trumpets, is a Sabbath rest that is commemorated by the blowing of trumpets. So at the second coming, there will be blowing of trumpets. So is the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11 the last trumpet ever heard? No, there's a Feast of Trumpets that's going to happen. So this disqualifies that as an argument. You guys still here? So for the seventh trumpet to be the timing of the rapture puts the church inside the tribulation period, which begins with the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel. As we read in 927 of Daniel, he'll confirm a covenant with uh, many for one seven-year period. One seven. But in the middle of the week, at the halfway point, 42 months, 1260 days, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. 
And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. He'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, between Israel and the church, which group offers sacrifices? Israel. Does the church offer animal sacrifices? No, who does that? Israel. So this whole time period is about the nation of Israel, the things in the Olivet Discourse related to the days before the flood that relates to the end of the church age. Now, the covenant is the 70th week of Daniel. And here's the other, I think, proverbial nail in the coffin about uh, the arguments of mid and post-tribulation rapture. The church wasn't present for the other 69 weeks. Why would it be present for the 70th? It wasn't on the earth during the first 69. And the, the weeks of Daniel, the uh, 77-year periods that are determined for Daniel's people and the holy city are divided up into three segments, divided up into seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. And the first seven weeks, or the period of 49 years, talks about historically the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple after the Babylonian captivity. The next 62 seven-year time periods uh, is, ta is talking about from the end of the rebuilding of the temple to the day the Messiah, the Prince of Israel, rode into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. Now, if you didn't catch all that, I'm not saying it again. You'll have to get the tape. We don't have tapes, but you can listen online. Now, listen, the church is not appointed to God's wrath. And the fact is, the whole tribulation is God's wrath. The covenant of the 70th week of Daniel is with Daniel's people and the holy city. The church was not present for the first 69, and it will not be present for the 70th week of Daniel. Now, here's what we need to understand about God's wrath. In Romans 1.18, we're told the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God that follows in Romans 1 is described as giving the people up to uncleanness, giving the people up to vile passions, and then finally giving the people over to do things uh, that were associated with the debased mind uh, that they had. In other words, letting people experience the consequences of their sins, and then giving them over to the cost of rejecting God. Now, the wrath of God in Romans 1 is manifested like this. Even as they did not, Romans 1, 28 to 32, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting or things that are not right before God. And that is these, being filled with all unrighteousness. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness, they are whispers, backbiters, haters. Sounds like what we're seeing today, doesn't it? Haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing what? The righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, the point of reading all them these things is this. Not all wrath is hailstones of fire, earthquakes, and asteroids. Some of it is consequential, if you will, and it's the consequential wrath of God. God giving people over to their debased minds to do things that are not fitting. And God's wrath includes rampant moral depravity, delusional thinking from reprobate minds, and no longer restraining the Antichrist rise to power, that is also an act of God's wrath. 
And listen, the tribulation is the 70th week of Daniel, and the church will not be present for any of it. I could say more, but I won't. So, next on our list today, what about Isaiah 17.1? That standalone prophecy that many ask questions about. Some would argue, well, actually, Isaiah 17.1 was fulfilled by King Sennacherib, the Assyrian king in the 7th century B.C. Well, the Isaiah 17.1 prophecy, though brief, it's dramatic, says this. The burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a what? A ruinous heap. Now, if we look at 2 Kings 16.9, we're told the king of Assyria heeded him, and the king of Assyria is Sennacherib. For the king of Assyria went against Damascus and did what? He took it. Don't say he destroyed it. He took it. And he carried his people captive to Kir and then killed Rezin. Now, Sennacherib did not fulfill Isaiah 17.1 because Damascus did not cease from being a city. There's still a Damascus today, right? So that pretty much ends that debate. As a matter of fact, Damascus lays claim to be the oldest continuously inhabited city on the surface of the earth, claiming some uninterrupted existence of 4,500 years. Well, Damascus hasn't been destroyed, but it's going to be. Hello? It's going to be. Why? God said so. Damascus will cease from being a city. It will be a ruinous heap. Now, we're going to link that with another question because I believe they are tied together prophetically. The Isaiah 17.1 prophecy is kind of like Melchizedek. He just walks into the pages of Scripture and walks right out. And the same with Isaiah 17.1. It's just Damascus is going to be uh, cease from being a city and will become a ruinous heap. Now moving on. So it just kind of stands by itself. So I say that because we can't use other Scriptures to interpret it. We have to take it at face value. It's no longer going to be a city anymore. Amen? Now, what we do know is that today, Damascus, the capital of Syria, is where the invading forces of the Ezekiel War scenario are gathering together as we speak. Now, many of them have been there for about half a decade already. Now, I have to slip something else in here because this came in yesterday when I put on social media. We're going to be talking about this. Some say, isn't the Psalm 83 scenario what's going to happen next? And we don't have time to read it. You can go read it there for yourself. And let me just say this about the various interpretations of Psalm 83. This is a future battle, some say, with nations that share a border with Israel. Others would say that this was actually fulfilled when the nations that share a border with Israel invaded Israel at the declaration of their statehood on May 14, 1948. And the other interpretation or opinion is that this is an imprecatory prayer over, for victory over Israel's enemies, much like David would often offer, even though Psalm 83 is authored by Asaph. Now, let me say this about the future battle view and uh, much of what is written and said about it. Now, within it, there is uh, an effort to make all the nations share a border with Israel and uh, draw Egypt into this particular scenario. And uh, some have said, and there's even a book about it, that the Hagrites are actually the Egyptians because Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden, uh, is the matriarch of the Egyptians. Now, I'm not an expert on Egyptian history, but if I was going to say, you know, the matriarch of Egypt is so-and-so, it wouldn't be a handmaiden. It'd be somebody like Cleopatra, right? I mean, Hagar was Sarah's 
handmaid. She was a servant. She was hardly the matriarch of Egypt because Egypt was well established at the time of this situation with Abram, Abraham and Hagar. Did you catch that? She is not the matriarch of the Egyptians. So that's a problem. And also the Bible says in 1 Chronicles 5.10 that the Hag Hagrites lived east of Gilead in what is now modern-day Jordan, uh, not Egypt. There's a group called Hagrites, and they are not Egyptians uh, at all. So uh, this is problematic, and I think the futurist view of the Psalm 83 uh, interpretation is, is one that is not valid. So the other two choices are this was fulfilled in 1948, or it's a prayer for victory over Israel's enemies. Which is it? Both. Could be both. Because nations that share a border with Israel did attack Israel multiple times in their young history. And of course, uh, Israel was praying for victory over their enemies. And uh, the psalm was just simply recording this as an imprecatory prayer like David often prayed, like we said. Now, back to Damascus. I just, that's kind of a bonus point. And if you didn't get that, we're still moving on. So... Now, what I believe the relationship between the Damascus prophecy and Ezekiel 38 and 39 is that the destruction of Damascus is going to start the Ezekiel war. And that when Damascus is wiped out, the nations are going to gather against Jerusalem and invade it, uh, most of which are on the northern border in Syria right now. Now, let me throw something out here briefly about the combatants in the Ezekiel War, because there's two opinions on it. There's a majority opinion and a minority opinion, and I think there was validity in both uh, of these interpretations. Now, in Ezekiel 38, 1 to 6, Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, this is how the Lord referred to Ezekiel, Set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaw, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all of its troops, the house of Togarma, from where? The far north. And all its troops, many people are with you. Now, again, who is coming from the far north? Togarma is coming from the far north, right? So who's Togarma? First Chronicles 1.5 tells us the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. And then in Genesis 10.3, we're told the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Ripah, and who? Togarma. Now, Meshach, Tubal, Magog, Gomer, and Togarma all settled in northeastern Turkey. So the country from the far north, according to the Bible, is Turkey. Now, is that what we always hear? No, we hear the country from the far north with the hook in the jaw is who? Russia. Now, so what about Russia? Rosh is not mentioned in the Table of Nations. Rosh is not mentioned uh, amongst the descendants of uh, Noah. Rosh is only used as a proper name in Genesis 46 as a son of Benjamin. Now, the fact that it's separated like that could imply that Rosh has a different identity than the other nations. 
And the reason that's important is because if Rosh is Russia, that would make the tie between the nations that we named, Persia being Iran, Libya is, you don't have to guess, I already told you what it is. <laughs> Libya is Libya. Ethiopia in antiquity means the area south of Egypt, not the modern country named uh, Ethiopia. It speaks of the Sudan. All of these share a common feature, and that is they are, what religion? Muslim. They're all Muslim. They're all Muslim countries, Turkey. Uh, obviously included in that. Now, again, if Rosh is Russia, that would mean that the tie between these nations is economic and not ideological or religious, which is possible. And in Ezekiel 30, 38, 1 through 3, the King Jimmy puts it like this. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now the King James does not translate Rush as a proper name. It translated, translates it as a noun. It translates it as chief. It is not uh, looking at it as a personage or a country name. Now, could it be that what's going on right now is going to lead to the collapse of Russia? and they don't participate at all, and it is strictly religious? I don't know, Russia's fallen apart before. In our lifetime, could it happen again? Sure. Could it mean that the relationship between the invading nations is strictly economic and related to energy product? Absolutely, it could be. And listen, it's it, very well possible that either one of these scenarios are gonna play out. And listen, this is not where we need to be getting dogmatic. I mean, the King James says one thing, the New King James says something that is understood differently, though the majority of the uh, verses agree completely with it. It's just, is Rosh a noun, or is it a proper name? And you know who's going to find out? The people who see it happen. Are we going to be here? I don't think so. Now, it's interesting that this tie that binds Russia with these radical Muslim nations, and since the protesting nations imply this, that the reason for the invasion is economic. In Ezekiel 38, 13, we're told of Sheba and Divan, the merchants of Tarshish and their young lions will say to you, the invading nations, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, carry away silver, gold to take away livestock and goods and to take plunder? And then 10 through 12 of Ezekiel 38 says, thus says the Lord God on that day, it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make a what? An evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go up to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited. That's a prophecy about the rebirth of the nation of Israel. And against the people gathered from the nation, same thing, who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Now, Israel does dwell in safety today. And I got the question again, I think it was this morning, what about dwelling in uh, cities with unwalled villages or a country with unwalled villages? There's a wall that separates the Palestinian areas from the Jewish areas. And listen, that wall has nothing to do with prophecy. The fact was in, the, in antiquity, in Isaiah's day, in Ezekiel's day, cities were surrounded by a wall. Is Jerusalem surrounded by a wall today? No, so the whole country is living in unwalled cities. Are they safe today? 
Ask any Jew who lives in Israel, and they'll tell you, we are completely safe. God is watching over us and protecting us. Now, who the players are in the Ezekiel War scenario will be debated until it happens. But the most important part of the battle scenario, I believe, is not who the players are, though that is significant in determining the, both the proximity and the location the invasion comes from. But I think the important thing we need to focus on this morning, and we're almost done, is how the battle ends. Now, in Ezekiel 38, 18 to 23, we're told, and it will come to pass at the same time, when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my what? Wrath. So this is God's response in his wrath. I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, and all creeping things that creep on the north, uh, on the earth, and men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against God throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know what? That I am the Lord. Anybody ever pray that stuff like that would happen right now? I'm sure we all have. You know, we've all at one time or another said, God, here's how you need to do the God thing. You, you need to be taking care of these people and do all this kind of stuff that we just read about. And you know, we live in the age of grace. We live in the age of postponed wrath. Is wrath coming? No. Listen, if anybody deserved this, it was the Nazis. Did God do it? No. Why? We're in the church age. These actions tell us, and the fact that this God said, I am answering in my wrath, tells us that the end of the Ezekiel War scenario happens during or after, I should say, the church is gone. Now, I wanted to pause there for a moment for a reason. Now, I cannot say for certain when this battle begins, but it seems most likely that it ends after the church is gone and for the reasons we just stated. Now, God has been defending Israel since their rebirth, right? I mean, the Palestinians have said, we've heard other nations say, you know, their, their God is protecting them. He's redirecting their missiles, the our missiles, the Palestinians have said. In other words, they're saying, we can't hit nothing because their God's doing that. God has defended Israel, right? Oh, they brag about the Iron Dome, but they're being protected by the Iron Hand. And that is the hand of God. However, the difference in the Ezekiel War scenario is that God isn't defending Israel. He's going on the offensive. He's using his weaponry to fight as he fights in the day of battle as Ezekiel, uh, or I'm sorry, Zechariah 14 talks about at the end of the age. He goes on the offensive in 38 and 39, which is more consistent with his actions concerning Israel outside of the church age, much like the plagues that happened in Egypt. Now, with that said, in summary form, I believe that what scripture indicates is the destruction of, the, of Damascus will lead to the invasion of Israel. The conclusion of the war and the devastation that happens to the invading armies will be the catalyst for allowing the Jews to rebuild their temple during the tribulation period 
after the church has been raptured. Now listen, there is nothing that indicates the rapture in the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel are simultaneous. In other words, the day the rapture happens doesn't begin the tribulation. There's going to be a time span between those events, most likely. And the truth is, it could also mean that the rapture is what causes the evil thoughts to arrive in the mind, arise in the minds of the invading forces, thinking Israel is now on their own. Because Israel really has only one ally today, that's a superpower, and that's us. So, one more thing, I think, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, I have to say this. The Ezekiel War is not the Battle of Armageddon, as we call it. And really, uh, Amir always points out, there's no such thing as the Battle of Armageddon. It's a battle that's fought in the Valley of Megiddo, but it's called the Great Battle of God Almighty. And that's uh, how Revelation refers to it. And a lot of people say, well, you know, the Ezekiel War scenario and the battle at the end of the millennium are the same battle because Gog is mentioned in both places. Gog is just figurative for those who lead battles against Israel, I believe. Now, the reason that this is not the battle of Armageddon in Ezekiel, and the reason it's not the battle at the end of the millennium is because the Ezekiel War has a list of five invading nations, and Armageddon and the final war involve all the nations of the world. All the nations of the world, according to Zechariah 12.3, gather against Jerusalem. All the peoples of the earth gather against the, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in the city of Jerusalem at the end of the millennium. The Ezekiel battle has a specific outcome. It's distinct from the other two. Ezekiel's war is followed by seven months of burying the dead. The Armageddon battle, as we call it, is followed by or ends by the second coming of Jesus. The end of the millennium is followed by and the battle that happens there, the great white throne judgment. They're not the same battle. They're completely different battles. Now, here's where we're really going to close. <laughs> the fact that the nations named in Ezekiel are allied together ideologically and or economically today, and that energy resources are at the heart of all that is going on in the world right now. And this is combined with the fact that nobody is doing anything militarily to stop Putin and what he's doing in Ukraine. All they're doing is protesting that it's happening, just like what will happen when Israel is invaded. That says this. The world is ready for the beast to rise to power and bring a false peace apart from God to the earth. And what that tells us is that Jesus is coming soon. Somebody say, Amen. Amen.